Exodus chapter 10. We will read the account of the ninth plague, which starts in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve Yahweh our God, and even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me! Take heed to yourself and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us light in our minds to understand this text. Lord, don't send the plague of darkness on us. Shine the light of your Son by the power of your Spirit into our hearts. Free us from distraction. Help me to preach accurately and powerfully with demonstration of the Spirit, those things that are in this text, for the good of your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second worst plague. When you think about that at first, you have to say, is it really? Who does it harm? Whose crops are damaged? Whose livestock is killed? Who suffers material harm from this plague? And yet, if you think about it a bit more, You see just where the horror lies. We'll talk about that in just a second. What we see in the text is that this plague is indeed worthy to stand as the penultimate plague, the ninth of ten. And it tells us, don't fight the light or you'll find yourself in the dark. Don't fight the light or you will find yourself in the dark. Who does it harm? It's a plague on the mind. We think we know what lockdown is. We have no idea. The text doesn't tell us whether there was any warning. Remember the third plague in each cycle of three is not, there's no warning announced. Moses and Aaron simply performed the plague. It was that way with the boils. It was that way with the, the lice. Moses just stretches out his hand. What are the Egyptians doing? They're carrying on their daily business, and suddenly darkness falls, right? Each person 
presumably believes, I've been struck blind. Or they decide that it's darkness, you grope your way to the lamp, you strike a flame and it gives no light. You light the lamp and the house is still dark. You hit that button on your phone and the screen stays blank. There's a few noises out there in the darkness, but you don't know how far the darkness stretches. Who else is in it? There's no way to get news without striking out into the darkness. No wonder no one moved his play from his place for three days. What do you do when you realize it's not going away anytime soon? You go and you pull the covers up over your head and you say, this is all I can handle right now. I'm going to bed. And I'm not leaving because I don't know what just happened. It's a plague on the mind. I was thinking about this in terms of the mask issue that we've been discussing. Imagine being told by health officials that our sight was the problem and we all needed to cover our eyes. Bandage up. That's what God sent on these Egyptians. How could you even compare the quality of life of a family with light in their home, the quality of life of a family with darkness in their home? The rationalizing commentators say, sandstorm, three real dim days, with a lot of dust in the air. That's why it could be felt. Well, you're breathing in sand all day. I don't think that that's what Moses is trying to convey here. A bad sandstorm blew in and blocked out the sun and it was really dim for three days. People don't stay home for three days because there's a sandstorm. Now this is a supernatural darkness, like the three hours of darkness at the crucifixion, in which God is saying, Egypt, look out. Pharaoh, you're cruising. All right, that's why Pharaoh doesn't negotiate with Moses. Pharaoh called to Moses after the plague is over. There's no messenger who's going to go across the city to Goshen to find Moses in the darkness. Not worth it. And yet, all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Obviously, at a historical level, the text is simply telling us that God didn't send the plague of darkness on Goshen. But the metaphorical level is only too obvious. The people of God, we are called to have light in our homes. To be a place where people know, the neighbors understand, there's light in that house. Whatever darkness is in my life, in my home, there's light there. Do we keep and maintain those kinds of homes? Are we the children of Israel with light in our dwellings? 
spiritual life. It's not about how many light fixtures you have. It's about the understanding of reality that Jesus Christ gives. What John says, he is the true light and enlightens everyone coming into the world. What is often called the light of reason, the logos principle and the mind. Without Jesus, there is no understanding of anything. That's the light that the children of Israel had in their dwellings. Now it's imperative on us to do the hard work of relating the light of the world to the individual facts of our existence. But we can't give up or surrender to the darkness or say, Jesus is not relevant to this. The light of the world doesn't have any bearing on my diet, my entertainment, my friendships, my family. Yes, he does. So the darkness lifts. Pharaoh is shaken. He calls Moses as soon as he wakes up on that fourth morning. And the sun is back in the sky. He calls Moses and says, you can go. You can take everything, your children, but leave your flocks. I remember since Joseph, the land in Egypt had been confiscated to the crown. The only form of capital available to the ordinary Egyptian was livestock. And that is certainly the case with Israel as slaves. Pharaoh says, leave all your stuff behind. Don't serve God with your capital, with your money, with your resources. You can take your kids this time. Pharaoh still doesn't understand that the issue is whether Pharaoh has the right to give permission to God's people. Whether Pharaoh is actually in charge of God's people. He sees himself as the final arbiter of whether or not they can go. So Moses tries this gambit, which is really interesting. It's like he goes with it. Okay, we won't take our flocks. We have to serve the Lord, though. We have to offer sacrifices. So Pharaoh... You can provide us with sacrificial animals. Now, as evangelism gambits go, this is a really interesting one. I'm sure there are people out there who could be converted by the chance to give to the church building fund. There may not be a lot of them. But Moses is saying, Pharaoh, it's not too late. You can offer your animals in sacrifice to Yahweh. You can give to God. Your stuff isn't tainted. Your worship won't be rejected. You're not Cain bringing an unacceptable sacrifice. If you'll just give us flocks and herds with which to worship the Lord. Now that's a pretty bold invitation. Pharaoh certainly has shown no indication to this point that he's interested in paying for the worship of the Lord. Pharaoh, you can endow a church. Moses, of course, immediately drops it, probably based on the look on Pharaoh's face. (laughs) 
And so he just goes on to, our livestock will go with us. We'll take our animals. That's how this is going to work. Not a hoof will be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Growing up reading this passage, I thought, Moses, that's so self-serving. To just say, I can't tell you what I need to bring because the fact is, I don't know. Seems a little too convenient, but actually, it's true. We don't know what God is going to demand from us until he demands it. We have some idea, of course. He wants my life in a general way. He wants my money. He wants my time. He wants my family. But at the moment when God takes your health, takes your spouse, takes your child, or at the moment when you realize, I'm called to Africa. God wants me to be a missionary in a closed country. Or, God has sent me a disabled child to parent. Right? Even we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until that moment comes. And callings can change. Moses is just stating the literal truth. There's no way of setting out on the Christian life and saying, this much is God's, rest is mine. God, you can have these, but not those. I don't care if you take the boat, but if you put me in a situation where I have to live in squalor, if you put me on a dirt floor, it's over. If you put me somewhere where I have to drink nasty drinks or eat horrible foods, you know, that Mongolian tea that they make with rancid butter comes to mind, or that banana drink that the South Americans have where they all chew bananas together and spit them in the barrel and then drink that a week later after it's sat out in the sun. Not doing it, Lord. But we can't decide that we're not doing that. Even we don't know what we'll serve him with till we get there. And this is tied into the theme of light in Israel's houses. Light in the house doesn't mean we do things the way we want to do them. It's my house, I do what I want in here. That's a dark house. I had dinner with my cousin and her husband in Dallas this week. And the husband said that they have a proverb around their house. A girl he dated told him one day, I'm breaking up with you because I'm an adult and I don't have to do what I don't want to do. And he said, well, I guess it's a good thing you're breaking up with me because if that's your attitude, I would have had to break up with you. But Moses doesn't have that attitude. I'm an adult and I don't have to do what I don't want to do. I'm an adult, but I'm a slave. I'm not a slave to Pharaoh. I'm a slave to Yahweh. 
And he can and will demand unknowns. He is going to ask me for something. I know that. But even I don't know what it is until the moment when he asks for it. And what's the alternative? The alternative is the darkness. The alternative is slavery to Pharaoh, who is by no means the kind of taskmaster who will let you say, this area of my life is off limits. Pharaoh, I don't work for you between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. You can serve God or you can serve Pharaoh, but you must serve. I'm an adult and I don't have to do what I don't want to do. That attitude will put you right in prison where you have to serve the system there. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. The external darkness mirrors the condition of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh has chosen the darkness. So even though the sun is back out in Egypt, Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he's still in the darkness of thinking that somehow, some way, he will conquer and vanquish Yahweh. In the battle for whose servant Israel is going to be, Pharaoh has hardened his heart and he continues to fight against God. He couldn't even imagine the light of the Lagos coming into his life and giving an understanding of a world in which he, Pharaoh, is not Lord and Master. Pharaoh was an adult and he didn't have to do what he didn't want to do. Or so he tells Moses. Pharaoh was not interested in light. He was just as happy in the dark. And so, as we saw last week, God hardened his heart. So what's the outcome of this ninth plague? Things are at the breaking point. And Pharaoh and Moses end with a little screaming match. They get angry and they descend to the pettiest of all threats. I'll never speak to you again. It's pathetic. Two grown men. And yet, after months of dealing with Pharaoh's temporary repentance, most people, most scholars think that the plagues took around one year to complete. Plague every five weeks or so. And here we are, toward the end of that year, Moses and Pharaoh have been at each other's throats the whole time, and finally they snap. And Pharaoh utters this threat, get away, watch yourself, see my face no more. And then, as God later says, no man can see my face and live. So Pharaoh echoes that, taking to himself that divine prerogative, the day that you see my face, you'll die. Well, that's not true. Chapter 12, there's no convincing way to read it as though Moses and Pharaoh don't encounter each other again. Verses 31 and 32. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise and go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. 
Things like, well, it was dark, so they couldn't see each other. Or, Pharaoh stood in a different room so that Moses couldn't see him. Just absurd. If there's someone who changes his mind and doesn't follow through more often than the Exodus Pharaoh, I'd like to meet him. Or rather, I wouldn't like to meet him. But, Pharaoh says stuff he doesn't mean all the time. He gets angry. He utters an empty threat. And Moses gets angry back. And utters the same empty threat. You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. This is not Moses accessing deep prophetic knowledge. This is Moses cracking under the strain and yelling back at Pharaoh. Pharaoh is trapped in the darkness, but he wants to be there. He's happy to stay where he's at. In his hard heart, to make empty threats to Israel as though he's the arbiter of whether or not Moses will see his face. Pharaoh, you don't control whether Israel will leave. You don't control whether Moses will see your face. But Pharaoh, fighting the light, is trapped in the darkness and he can't even see that he has no control over whether Moses will see his face and over whether Moses will die when he does so. so. Moses gets angry. Moses found forgiveness for that, no doubt. Moses also got angry before this, when he killed the Egyptian. And after this, when he struck the rock, sin pattern that runs through his life. All of us have those same sin patterns. And each of us know pretty much right off the bat what our sin pattern is. Not to say that it's unforgivable. Not at all. If you're walking in the light, God forgives those sins. But even the man Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth, had a limit. And when that limit was reached, he started yelling at Pharaoh. God gives light. He was able to take the way, take away the plague of darkness and prove himself to be the light of the world. So as we've seen in every plague, what's the message? Essentially this, don't live like Pharaoh. Don't be trapped in the darkness. Respect and worship the God who has the power to send the plagues. Don't live in the darkness. Live by the light of the world, even if it outrages blind fools like Pharaoh. Of course, the outrages of the blind fools might make you angry. And if so, go into the light and confess your sin and find forgiveness. When God's face shines on you, it means not death, but life. His face is better than Pharaoh's. Pharaoh threatens death from his face. The light of God's face brings life. Your loving kindness is better than life. Therefore, my lips will praise you. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is visible in the face of Jesus Christ.
So, the plagues have shown us the choice between God and the devil in terms of frogs versus no frogs, flies versus no flies, boils versus health, hail versus good weather. But as we move toward the end, they're getting more overtly spiritual, more overtly symbolic. Obviously, nobody would choose to have frogs in their bed and boils on their skin. Nor would anybody choose. Certainly, I've never heard. There are some people who don't like society. They leave human beings and go off and live alone in the wilderness. I've never heard of anyone who goes into a cave and lives there with no light. Don't go embrace the darkness. Stay in the light. And we'll see you next time. The most overtly symbolic plague of all. Life is found only through the death of the firstborn son. God is light. Pharaoh lives in darkness. Which one will you go with? Let's pray. Father, we know that even a tiny baby pre-born in the womb will see light and swim towards it. You have built us to love the light. Light is good and it is pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. Father, overlaying that creational good is our fallenness and the equal reality that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He who walks in the darkness hates the light and will not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Lord, we know each one of us knows that experience of preferring the darkness, of trying to hide our own sin, of pretending that it's not really there and preferring to be in the darkness where it can't be seen. Lord, give us the grace to come out of the darkness and into the light. Moses doesn't hide his sin in this passage. He reports to us that he got angry and yelled at Pharaoh. Let us similarly, Father, not hide our sin. Come to the light and show that our works have been carried out in God. Give us the grace to walk in the light as you are in the light. Let us come to your heavenly kingdom and see your face in light and glory. We pray in the name of your Son, who is the light of the world. Amen.